0: Host Ted Enstick, and as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just define the relationship. Hi, and welcome back to the Define the Relationship Podcast. This week we have the pleasure of sitting down over Zoom with Jason Biasi, who is the author of a book called Surprised by Jesus Again: Reading the Bible in Communion with the Saints. Both Darlene and I had the um, we sat down with Jason to talk about how we might think differently about how we define our relationship to the Bible and how we might read it in new and creative ways. We will join that conversation now.
1: Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that you are uh your official title is the butler chair in homiletics and hermeneutics. And you'll probably need to say a little bit about that for people in our community to understand what that means. But you're from, you're at the Vancouver school of theology, correct? Yeah. And, uh, you were once a pastor at Boone United Methodist, which we actually have an interesting connection to that church. We were there. (laughs) We were there once. Come
0: on. How did that happen? Uh, in 2003, we were a part of uh, a Mennonite Brethren mission um, program called SOAR in North Carolina, and our home base was in the Boone UMC Church. <laughs> and, That's uh,
1: incredible.
0: Yeah, it was a place where I learned that my uh, my mantra of it's better to ask for p- forgiveness than permission kind of ran into a <laughs> bit of a cul-de-sac uh-huh. We had um, come out there to do this two-week program, and I was going to do some video editing, so I brought a bunch of computer stuff down there. And the one thing that I w- that I forgot to bring was a power supply cord for my CPU. Uh-huh. And I noticed that in the in the Not church known. office there was a there was a. Um photocopier that was clearly out of order. It wasn't working and the power supply cord was draped over top. And somebody said to me, I don't I don't know if it was somebody from the church or someone said, I well, oh, I think that's out of order. And I said, Well, you think I could use that power supply cord? And they said, Well, I don't see why not. So I just decided I was going to uh take it and set my stuff up and then one evening, there was a fairly irate associate pastor who was doing some kind of programs, was running around saying, who took the power supply cord? Where's my cord? And, uh, yeah. I fessed up and, uh, she made sure I, she, I, she knew how disappointed she was in me. And,
2: uh, <laughs> I know that pastor. She's, she's actually a sweetheart. I'm sure um, she is.
0: She probably told uh, the story.
2: <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, so the church would have been fairly, it would have been a pretty new building at the time. What's what, what it brings to mind is that the uh, Mennonite church in Boone is the black church in town. I don't know if you guys got this history uh, just because you had, um, if you were in an interracial marriage or uh, something along those lines and you didn't want to get shot in uh, the South, you moved to Appalachia. And so you had this communities of often very light skinned African American people, who black churches weren't interested in and white churches sure weren't interested in. And so Mennonite brethren from Canada with the beards to wander down to Appalachia and evangelize and plant churches. And so it's this weird case where, uh, you know, I was thinking about Canadian Mennonites like long before I was thinking about a job here um, and giving thanks for y'all. Um, that was my closest pastor friend in town uh, was the guy who had come up through the ranks there and then planted a different church in town. Uh, so homiletics and biblical hermeneutics, I, I've got two words in my title that ordinary civilians don't need to bother with. Um, I just say I teach preaching. Um, so uh, that's what homiletics is. It, it, sometimes like Catholic and Ang- Anglican churches will talk about a homily instead of a sermon. It, it's just a different word for the same thing. Uh, hermeneutics just means uh, how you interpret texts. Um uh, and it's a discipline that was birthed in the church because what are we always arguing about? How do you interpret scripture, right? So it's its own secular discipline now. Um, but it comes from uh, uh, Hermes, the messenger god in ancient Greece, but it was only coined in the 1800s. Um, so don't, don't let them fool you into thinking it's a, an old discipline. Um, but it is an old problem. Uh, we got these complex texts. We're in a different situation and yet we're claiming uh, that they have some authority. Like, what on earth does that mean?
1: How long have you been there?
2: Uh, This is my sixth year. Um, And, uh, yeah, it's a a little bitty seminary on the west coast of Canada. I'm from North Carolina. Um, This is an entirely new – both the west coast and Canada are new kind of frontiers for me. One of my main – vocations is as a journalist um i worked at christian century magazine for a long time and i really like wandering into places and asking big nosy questions so i really admire y'all's work on the podcast Um, you can do that as a kind of private individual and people tell you to get lost you can do it and say i'm working on a magazine article and they're like oh come in sit down i'll tell you my life story and uh so Getting to write about churches, both in Canada and uh, and really on the Pacific Rim, has been new for me. Um, but we miss North Carolina. My wife and I met at Duke Divinity School. As I mentioned, we're both Methodist ministers. Um, we miss Duke basketball barbecue and barbecue. Uh, it's always food and culture things, right, that are kind of geographically particular. But there's there's a lot that's amazing here, and we've figured out how to eat sushi and uh, how to hike in unreasonable weather.
1: Well, Jason, why don't we begin? Um, the The name of the podcast is "Define the Relationship," and um, I'm curious to just start with um, asking you about how you would define your relationship with the Bible. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that terminology of a DTR, like I have.
2: Um- I heard Brad Jerzak be puzzled at it. And I was puzzled that he was puzzled. We just called it DTR all the time. So that's something you guys in Manitoba and we in North Carolina had in common. I don't know why. Um, And, and it escaped Brad. Um, So, yeah. um, And I don't know if
1: you want to, if you want to talk about it now, or if you want to kind of look at a, just a really brief overview, but just tell us a little bit about what your relationship with the Bible has looked like.
2: Yeah, so, um, my family wasn't religious, uh, but they sent me to a, a Baptist camp where I had a conversion experience. Um, and the kind of heavy emphasis on Bible reading that came out of that both made me interested in the Bible, but also made me a good student. My parents say I wasn't interested in school until that came along. Um, and, uh, but I was from Chapel Hill, super liberal university tech community, and I, you know, very early, I didn't care for the kind of melding of evangelical faith and Republican politics. And I didn't care about it because, uh, it was a, it was a non-starter for evangelism. So I really wanted my friends to know about Jesus, but they were like, are you really talking to me about partisan politics? And I really wasn't, but I could see why they were afraid of that. Um, so, uh, so I spent time in evangelical campus ministries, um, but then I finally kind of backed into a liberal mainline church, the Methodist Church, because I felt like, well, at least here I can figure out who my friends and my enemies are. Um, and Methodism has an evangelical pedigree, even though that's a couple hundred years old. Um, so, uh, so the Bible for me—I mean, it, the Bible was 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 a question amidst all of that. How do we read it um, passionately, beautifully, um, in a way that's life-giving? Um, and I um, found the, the mess of problems I was willing to live with in a mainline setting like that. Now, I came out here and realized, okay, what's left of the Protestant mainline and evangelicalism are way farther apart in, outside the South. Um, so I, I speak for myself as trying to smudge the lines between um, such uh, definitions because I don't think they're useful. Um, but it's a little harder to do in this part of North America.
0: So I, I wonder if, I, I, in, in thinking about the question of defining the relationship, one of the kind of my observations about your book, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you feel like you were trying to do with the book, what the, what the main thrust of it is, but there's many pages where I'd say that you're trying to describe kind of a smoldering, um, passionate relationship with the Bible, and so maybe maybe that can lead into you talking about the book but um that was something that really jumped off the page for me how um in the language you were using uh, that the the passion you have for studying scripture really jumped out.
2: Oh that's lovely. Thank you for saying that. I like that word smoldering. Let's let's rescue that from bad uh, romance novels. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one thing I was really struck by getting to know the early church literature is they speak in, and not just the early church, the medieval church does too, and then it just ends with the enlightenment. It just vanishes. But they'll use the language of passion and of, uh, eroticism and really of sexuality um, to talk about God, and then they, they, they so pepper their language with biblical references, it's hard to tell where one stops and another starts. Um, in my experience trying to smudge the lines between the fault lines between communities, I often find liberals will say, well, yeah, sure, that's in the Bible, but we don't care about the Bible anyway, so we're just going to make stuff up. And conservatives, on the, on the other hand, will be like, well, this is in the Bible, so we're going to do it even if it's absurd and dehumanizing to people, right? Those are vast caricatures, of course. Um, but one thing I like on the evangelical side is the passion. I mean, the kind of uh, creative desire to love God, and um, to introduce uh, neighbors and uh, strangers and enemies to a living relationship with the living God. And um, on my liberal side of the ledger, I often don't find that. So I'm trying to to take the Christocentrism and the love for Jesus um, and the creativity um, from one community and then not be afraid of... um, erudition, academic exploration, et cetera. But I really want it to live uh, not just from the neck up. I mean, you're, you've picked up on that correctly, I think. Um, uh, so it's one of the reasons I don't like the Marcus Borg formulation, to take the Bible seriously but not literally. I think it's exactly wrong. Because um, uh, if you say that, you lose all the stuff that, like liberals love you, lose love your enemies, you lose visit those in prison, uh, you lose pray for those who persecute you. Like that's all just literal. <laughs> um, the, the, the command is go do these things, and so to say seriously but not literally just immediately gives you a kind of crowbar to safely isolate your soul from Christ who's trying to take it over.
1: So I th- and I think you see the literal as it's just not it's not the beginning and end, correct?
2: Right. Right. I mean, uh, one thing that's important to me, so what you asked about the, the origin of the book. I, I wrote a, a dissertation. You say I wrote a dissertation, everybody yawns appropriately, right? But I wrote a dissertation on um, reading the uh, Psalms Christologically, that is reading the Psalms in light of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I, I learned that from St. Augustine, who speaks of how uh, Christ on his cross is not just randomly quoting scripture. He's teaching his church how to read his Bible in light of his passion. And so it's a Bible study. Um, now, what what we do with that is we read the Psalms very, very literally. Uh, the monks I learned this from often have the whole Psalter memorized. And then we read it with reference to Christ who's saving his creation. So I don't want to give up the language of literalism, even when I talk about reading figuratively, um, because reading the Old Testament in light of Christ is a kind of Christological literalism. It's taking the letter very, very seriously with reference um, uh, to the head of the church. Um, now I'm forgetting what, what your question was, Darlene. I'm sorry.
1: I think I was just talking about how the, I mean, I think the literal is you're saying you don't want to lose that and it's not, Correct. and, and it's, but it's a different, it's a multi-layered kind of interpretive lens. Yeah. As that's that's to, well
2: said. Yeah. The letter is capacious. It's really, really stretchy. So when my guy Augustine sees the church in the Psalms, he doesn't realize he's reading allegorically. He thinks that's just straight literalism. And I think he's right about that. So if you like, we got to figure out what we mean by the word letter. Um, there's a scholar I like, Graham Ward, who call, talks about literalism. L-E-T-T-E-R-A-L. Um, our view of, of the literal is so cramped and unimaginative that no one actually interprets any text that way, right, except maybe six justices on the Supreme Court and the Constitution, right? Like, it's, it's a very Enlightenment modernist um, and not very interesting way to read any text.
0: Yeah, and I think, like, if I want to bring it back a bit to kind of um, because we lead a, a small congregation, m- many people are having quite a wrestle with the scriptures and um, its impact on their life. Should it be, like, should they go the full kind of liberal mode and say, like, you know, we right. just don't really believe in that anymore? Um, and I don't think they're quite prepared to to go the other way. Um, and I think when they use the word, like, I don't read the Bible literally. They mean that pejoratively, that literal is actually... A negative a way slur. of reading. And I mean, yeah. one of the things that you're focusing on the book is, um, a more, <laughs> uh, like you say, a more comprehensive understanding of what literalism is. But you, you threw up the, the terms allegorical and figural yeah. reading of Bible. Yeah. And I, I really th- be great if you could sure. give us a bit of a, a Bible 101 on allegorical, figural readings for people who aren't used to thinking about scriptures in that way.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, yeah, I really am trying to win back the word literal and not let it be a slur. Um, I actually think interpreting the letter is a glorious thing to do. And creatively and playfully seeing how our community finds itself in the letter and is guided by Christ through the letter of Scripture I think is a delight. Um, uh, and I've learned that from the way rabbis interpret Scripture. Uh, there's a kind of deep literalism and a playfulness and a deep communal sense, right? Um, so, uh, so I'll give you an example and it's, and it, and it bends into your question about allegora allegory, uh, allegory and, and figural exegesis. Exegesis just means interpretation, drawing out what's there. Um, so the song of songs, it's not only in the canon, ancient Christians and Jews speak of it as the kind of high point of the canon, the kind of climax uh I don't mean that in a double entendre sense, but I guess it's there. Um, so, uh, so okay, who is this one whose love is as strong as death, whose passion um, is stronger than the grave? Um, who is this one who's uniting humanity and divinity in his person? Um, a question like that makes you realize, oh, well, then you can read the song really literally um, and learn at a level about God and about us that you don't really have otherwise. So um so for example, one way to speak of interpreting the song literally would be this is simply an erotic poem and it's nothing but that. And rabbis and church fathers and medievals were really, really stupid um, because they let it this soft pornography into the canon. Um, That's a not uncommon description among some historians who are not and, and I always want to say, does anyone want to go out on a date with you? <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean to be rude, but. um So there's another interpretation, which is to ask this. Well, what is sex for? Like, why do we have it? Um, and who is the God who thought of this raucous way, not only of joining persons, but of making new people? <laughs> so um if sex is already about God, then this poem about sexuality is already about God and the community through time, Israel and church, being enveloped in God's embrace in Jesus Christ. And so reading it literally there, I mean, this is often spoken of as an allegorical reading, that literally it's about sensuality, allegorically it's about Christ and the church or the God of Israel and Israel. Um, again, I'm smudging the lines. I, I think, yeah, okay, uh, literally and also Figurally, it's kind of about both things, and why are we, why are we dicing these up? Um, so an, an allegorical reading just means another sense, offering another sense of a text. Um, a figural reading uh, would often concentrate on the figure of Jesus and how he um, can be sort of darkly glimpsed in Israel scripture and then brightly glimpsed in the New Testament. And the more you concentrate on that figure, the more accustomed you get to finding him in unexpected places. Um, I'm really committed to that form of reading. It's how the church read the scriptures for a millennium and a half. Um, And I got committed to it because I found most of the arguments against it unpersuasive. Um, So there's a bit of that.
0: Hmm. I love that. Yeah. So if you're just joining the podcast in the last 5 minutes and you came upon talking about erotic poems and soft pornography, you might be surprised that this is a p- podcast about engaging the scriptures, but maybe maybe this will uh, help you engage scriptures maybe in a more interested way. This is
2: uh Where is this book? I got to yeah. find this thing.
0: Yes, definitely.
2: Um, but the thing is it's not I mean it's 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 about eros, desire, but it's not explicit. So um and if anything the lovers usually lose each other. Oh, like, well, so back. And then it ends with absence and longing, which is actually a pretty accurate description, in my experience, both of marriage and of prayer. Hmm. It's not unending upward and onward ecstasy, right? Like who could stand it in any way? Um, uh, that's just not what life is like. It's it's fits and starts, backwards and forwards, uh, more longing than fulfillment. Um, so, uh, I, And I'm drawing there on lots of recent scholars who've pointed out that that's both literal and figural and embodied and true.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's like one of the real strengths of the book for me was, um, I think part of it is that you're a really good communicator and writer. Um, I can imagine you're probably a really good preacher that you, the way you use language to evoke and, um, yeah, just derive emotion just from the words, and so you're trying, you're doing that in in writing the book, but you're also reminding us of just how much that is actually what we have in our scriptures, and, and we've um, got a we've got a
2: treasure we neglect. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and the passion thing really matters to me. My guy Augustine says uh, that uh, they'll, your listeners will notice what delights you. That doesn't mean they'll be delighted by what delights you. That means they'll notice it. So the trick for preachers is to be delighted by Christ and his scriptures and the world he's saving. Right. Um, So as those who interpret the scripture, we have to keep our delight kind of rightly tuned.
1: And for me, that's, that's probably one of two of the biggest takeaways for me. And what I've continued to sit with in your book is um, a question for myself about how I can continue to unlearn correct <laughs> mm. because, um, so many people in our community and growing up, um, we're, we're located in the Bible belt here and, mm. um, getting it right mm. it was central. And so mm. I think continuing to, um, I don't know why it's, it seems hard to imagine and it probably feels bad. I, I always feel a, a, a tinge of guilt when I admit that um, I have a huge love and passion for the church and for God and for Jesus. And mm-hmm. when I think about my relationship to the Bible, the delight mm-hmm. is not the first word that comes to mind at all. It's <laughs> yes. not even the fifth word that comes to mind. It's, yes. it's down in the list. And yes. um, so I
2: totally understand that. When Yeah. This, well, it's been used this, as a cudgel. You can hardly love it.
1: Right. And, and, and yet, it's really hopeful, and I, f- I felt like you did a, a really beautiful job of drawing us into your passion with it and kind of stirred mm-hmm. that up in, in the reader as well. Thank you.
2: So, yeah, I, I just noticed in our forebears an enormous freedom in interpreting the Bible, and yet they don't, that doesn't mean anything goes. They don't want to get it wrong, as it were, but they're not afraid when the Bible does say things that are prima facie wrong. And what they say is, you know what's happening there? Christ is winking at you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He wants you to read deeper, Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is much more interesting and true than, well, they were bad writers or editors or they were sloppy or whatever. No, stop it. They were not idiots. Uh, Our forebears are not fools. And in any way, the Holy Spirit does speak to us. Um, Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you were about to say something else. Yeah, no,
0: I I, I wanted to uh, maybe offer, I uh, maybe this is, I think this is a challenging question because it's, it's a challenging question for us. And so, um, just the connecting it to the book, like in the preface, I think it's like in the second or third page of your preface, you highlight a conflict between Jesus and Paul. Yeah. yeah. And I, I re, I mean, I, I love how you picked out something that I never made this connection before, but Jesus teaches whoever disobeys the smallest commandments will be the least in the kingdom. And then you show how Paul self-identifies as least of the of the apostles. And you go on to say how this kind of conflict the Bible is not anxious about. And I think anxiety is a good word there. So mm. so this is my observation. And uh, I'd say that we as like students of the church, we learnt much more from the Reformation on, partly because as Mennonites are right. that's where our tradition begins. And so um, it feels like since the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, which means scripture only, and the commitment to the right reading of scripture, mm-hmm. that um, conflict has been multiplied, if you think about mm-hmm. it, as a church. And mm-hmm. and now we live in a time, I mean, even as Canadians, we're super, super anxious of what's going on down south in the next six days plus. Yes, sorry about that. Yeah, and um, it feels like we live in an increased polarization as a society. And it often feels like the Bible is feeds into that in the way it's been dealt with since the reformation. So here's the big question. How do we recover the Bible as a text that can help bring us more together rather Mm -hmm. than split us apart?
2: Mm -hmm. What a great question. Um, So, uh, I am struck that if they wanted to, the editors of the canon, that is the Bible as we have it, could easily have drained out contradictions and difficulties. And they just didn't, right? Like, I, I've worked as an editor. It takes a little while. You sit there with a pen, and you fix stuff. And they didn't want to do that. Why? <laughs> um, they, they had a kind of confidence that... Um, Let's put it this way. If, if we were Muslims, that would be a problem. Because for Muslims, the Quran is the dictated word of God. Muhammad had nothing to do with it. He was in a trance. Um, we're not Muslims. We're, we're happy to say this book was written down by human beings, fallible human beings over many years, and it has jagged edges and contours. Uh, and it's so, it's more like a landscape, John Henry Newman says, than it is like, um, an encyclopedia entry. you got to know where you are, and you got to travel from one place to another. So one thing I'm trying to do with the book, I'm trying to read in a way that's very Catholic, that's very Jewish, uh, that's informed by the Orthodox tradition, and I'm trying to do it with the glories of evangelicalism. I mean, for me, the glories of evangelicalism are its focus on Jesus Christ, uh, its desire for conversion, um, its love for the Bible, its songs, right? Those songs are still the ones that move my heart. Um, and uh, I don't see, well, I see the Lord Jesus working in each of those places. And so there's this image I take from uh, Walter Casper, who was a Catholic cardinal worked on ecumenism, where he talked about a circle, and the circle has a center point. And he said, you know, ecumenical conversation usually tries to get this church and that church closer together, right? Um, But here's what happens. If everybody moves toward the center, they also get closer to one another, right? Right. so uh, uh, I'm trying to be kind of rigorously um, focused on Jesus and delighted by him and then to look around and say, oh, look, we're closer than we thought because we're closer to this one, mm-hmm. uh, this one who forgives enemies and uh, who invites all the wrong people and uh, who says, please take the worst seat. Um, and says, Hey, you know those people you disdain? Um, they're in the seats of honor. Now you still get to eat, but barely. <laughs> um, so, uh, so wherever Jesus goes, there's a party with all the wrong people and there's too much food and too much drink and there's religious people complaining. Um, and I, I want to be at that table, even if it's, uh, kind of at the, like, end where the bread is all cold by the time it gets to you. So I am consistent. I sometimes put it this way. Lots of liberal churches, like the ones I serve, talk a lot about diversity. And we've done that for 50, 60 years, and we've gotten less diverse. We've gotten more white, and we've gotten older. But look what happens if you talk about Jesus. Diverse people turn up. So diversity seems to be one of those weird things that you get by not aiming at it. I'd rather get it by aiming at Jesus and seeing who, what kinds of diverse people he draws to himself.
0: Hmm. And, and maybe, I mean, I, like this is one of the things that I think is ironic about the Reformation is that in service of, let's call it, uh, one reading, like a correct reading, it has yeah. actually spawned tremendous conflict and diversity of communities. Right. And exactly right. I wonder what it might look like if we focused more on the diversity in the text yeah, 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 and became more comfortable with that, might we develop um a capacity, a resilience for diversity that yeah. would allow us no, to actually co- coalesce with each other without having to say, like, well, you got it wrong. That's not right. Yeah. And yeah. quit excluding those people. It's
1: and and right. that's a big theme of Pete's book as well, yeah. is yeah, yeah. that these contra- contradiction and diversity and conflict, um <laughs> that these things are... Yeah. are not a problem, but I, but I like yeah. your, you're kind of saying, um, watch what happens when we focus on this centerpiece here and see That's what right. comes closer.
2: Um, what and who? yeah, I, so I do think as children of the reformation, we come from a movement that thought with a great deal of confidence, if you read the Bible faithfully correctly, um, bad things will not happen. <laughs> Let's just put it that simply. So I, I love how in the late 19th century, at about the same time, for about the same reason, Roman Catholics are saying the Pope is infallible when he rules ex cathedra, right? do not do that very often, but he can. Um, and about the same time, evangelicals are saying the Bible is infallible according to the original autographs, which we have no access to, but that'd be cool if we did, right? So communities that don't like each other, that aren't talking to each other at the same time are trying to say, can we count on anything? Like, is there anything you can absolutely take to the bank? And look what answers they come up with. The wrong ones. Yes, the answer is the Bible. Yes, the answer is the Pope. How about Jesus? (laughs) Why don't we say he's the one you can trust? Um, And that wasn't good enough for either communion, right? Because he has this way of, like, upsetting stuff and saying, you know, the religious people are wrong and the scandalous people are right. And anyway, let's see. <laughs> you know? So if you want to say all truth is fleshed in Mary's child, um, you're going to have a weird version of truth, but apparently that's the one we have.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. I like how you said that. that
1: was... <laughs> well, I'm going to meld my question uh, into two parts, but I, I asked you a version of it on in the class, actually. Okay. Um, I'm always thinking about um, just our specific community here um people that are made up of um some you know significantly wounded people that have been i i would say abused by by the yeah. bible and yeah. the, and the church yeah. and um don't know what they believe anymore. We have actually I'm really excited about this. We have a lot of people in our community that aren't sure if they're Christian mm, mm, anymore. Very, you know, they're just like, wonderful. I just yeah. don't know if I want to identify with this anymore. And a lot of those people I would say are they have little kids. Mm. And uh you know, it used to be true, I don't know if in in your part of the world it but it used to be true that uh, young adults would walk away from the church and then when they had kids, they would come back, right. drop right. their kids off at Sunday school. Right. Uh, this is, this is different. We're right. not seeing that we're seeing, um, a group of people that want to be in the church because there's something still drawing them. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think Jesus still draws them mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. the sense of community draws, but they have tons of questions and we yes. have, uh, I, I think we've tried to really encourage a culture of yes, bring them. Bring them all. If you don't think you're Christian, yes. yeah, come. You don't that's okay. Um and they're saying, "I don't if if there's a Sunday school, what are you going to teach the kids? Right. Because right. all those Old Testament stories yes. are they they just they they were moralistic and the the moral of the story is this is right. the right answer. Don't don't anger God. And, you know, so right. much of it has, you know, violence and destruction and whatever, all kinds of, com- can, um, problematic themes for, for them. Yes. Um, and so, okay. Two, two things. The one practical question we've been asking ourselves is, um, around the formation of, of, um, children spiritually and some Mm -hmm. of them are saying, well, do we, should we just focus on Jesus and, Mm -hmm. you know, should the old Testament come in later when there's more developmental maturity and ability to kind of see Jesus in the old Testament or Mm -hmm. more Christophilically, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: but, okay. So that's one question because one of the huge themes of your book is, is the that we cannot, you know, forget Israel and that we've been grafted in to, to this story. And so, you know, the, the whole, well, let's just forget about the old Testament. Right. If that's not an option, this is turning into a really long question. Um, okay. So I'm asking about if, whether you have any thoughts about, about formation of children in, in and formation of parents, like, Right. so much there's so much work that they would have to do to try to reimagine um right. th- these scriptures that they have been pounded with yes and i we're trying to make it accessible mm-hmm. i really care about kids accessing it and adults and parents that are like worn out by the bible accessing it, but it also feels like so much work to to, yes. to get yes. at it in a way that is, like, delightful.
2: Yes, yes. So I do have some thoughts. You won't be surprised. That's a great set of questions. Um, I mean, in one way, my book is kind of close to Greg Boyd's, which is why I have a whole chapter where I stop and say, I don't like this book of Greg Boyd's. So, I mean, he really does end up saying, Jesus and not the Old Testament, right? Like, um, we've kind of – in fact, that's a negative witness. It's a fake witness for the most part. Um, and I just feel like that's an early church heresy that we crossed off the list. Um, now, that doesn't answer your question about kids. So, kids, um, uh, I just try to be as sacramental as possible, by which I mean, you know, my church, like yours, is not um, – we're not a real presence in the Eucharist bunch quite. We're not a baptism saves you bunch. Um, but we do have a God who delights in material reality and loves saving through material means. And I just find kids and then their parents, if you preside over the sacraments well, you tell the whole story from creation, through the Red Sea, through the prophets, through Mary's womb, through the church, through mystics and martyrs and weird people to now. And um, as you pray that way, they start to realize how big and capacious and strange their community is. And then when you have a baptism, you do it at a river and you dunk people and you get everybody there wet. And you say, this is a God who delights in saving through water. And suddenly water starts to be different. You realize that like, it not only keeps us alive, it births us all over again. Right. And, When I preside over the uh, Eucharist, um, I try to have kids lay hands on that bread, right? Um, Try to have them uh, pour the wine um, and say, look, juice is different now. Bread is different now. It's a thing God delights in and saves with. And so I want them to find themselves in the story. And I find sacraments are kind of our natural place where that happens. Um, And then you start kind of doing that in other weird places. I mean, we lay hands on people for healing. We, um, send people out in mission. We, uh, we anoint people with oil. Like, um, so all these material things are things human beings at our childlike best know are magical. And so put them back to magical use like in church, in homes. Um, I don't think I'd want a hard and fast rule about not teaching Israel's story. I think, um, in fact, that's when Christians start to get, like our Jewish neighbors should worry if we Christians start treating Israel's scripture like it's not our story, because that's our deepest point of continuity with our Jewish neighbors. We just want to tell the story right, (laughs) non-abusively, beautifully. Um, So the example that comes to mind for some reason is Jonah, right? Like we're always teaching the Jonah story because kids like fish or something, um, but that's like an uproariously, ridiculously, hilariously ironic story of reversal. Jonah's the worst missionary in world history. He gets in the boat going the other direction. It takes the natural world, the sea and the storm and the pagan cussing sailors and the fish to get him to the right place. He's still mad, and he goes to Nineveh, and he's like, 40 days and you'll be dead. There, I did it, God, and they all convert. The cows put on sackcloth, right? Like, it Israel's greatest enemy becomes the model of repentance and Jonah's like I knew you would do this you always do this you're merciful no one wants you to be merciful stop it um I just think it's wonderful and we and we miss the humor in it right but
1: there's the moral, a reason Jesus, we, we reduce you know, it we we say like then right. the moral of the story is right like, don't to talk me, about like, your parents yeah or yeah. it was always about obey. Exactly. Don't.
2: Right. And, uh, if that's the moral of the Jonah story, I don't see it. I mean, he doesn't obey and God still saves his enemy and, and, and makes him steaming mad. Right. So, um, I don't know. My friend Tim Larson is the expert on the Victorian era, but like how the Victorians managed to make everything moralistic and everything about keeping this zipped and not saying these words and, uh, doing what your parents say, you know, th- there's a place for all of that. We got stuff on that, but it's a minor key. It's not the only key. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Jonah story, like Jesus keeps pointing to, to it because God is always saving the wrong people and disconfitting religious people. That's what that story is about, right? So I think you can tell that story in a way that shows it's, it's humor. And then, but there's another piece to this, darling, that, um, there's a kind of darkness to life with God that I don't want to lose. So saints and mystics will say, look, the more you pray, the less you hear from God and the more frustrating it gets. Like when you're young, like God will rush to your side, like an anxious boyfriend to tell you he loves you all over again. Right. But like, as you mature, God's like, yeah, I'm not doing it. Cause we're not kids anymore. And, and, and it's more like a marriage growing mature. Right. Um, uh, so I don't know a lot of people spend the rest of their lives rejecting a version of the Christian faith they learned when they were eight years old, right yeah. There's a way in which the faith grows with us, and um, so there's some thoughts
0: yeah hmm. very helpful you. yeah, you know I just that just just to give you uh, I don't know if Darlene experienced this uh this story, but um, I mean part of our Yeah, part of the real difficulty with being church in COVID is that these material, these material sacraments have become almost impossible. So although we're a Mennonite church who traditionally would have done communion four times a year and, and often not in the actual Sunday morning service, but outside of it. Mm. Um, we moved to every week communion about four years ago. But since COVID, we have not been able to do that. And so we have a lot of young children. And just this past uh, weekend, one of the young children, as he was about to leave church services, uh, he said to his dad, like, uh, I'm still waiting for some bread. Like, where's, oh, the, where's yeah. the bread that we always partake of when I'm here and this isn't happening? And it just, I think it sort of reinforces how when we make it real, material in that way then that's actually yes. spiritual formation for those children they're they're really yeah, getting uh, that and so it just makes me feel like we have desire. to we have to figure out a way to do that without using um yes um dixie cups and no that's right stuff so
2: yeah i've written a whole thing about how online communion is probably a bad idea but i'm doing a temporary gig for a church and they're like all right your first sunday you're celebrating communion online <laughs> <I'm> like, man <laughs> come on but Sure. Okay. Like, you know, like, uh, they didn't ask me if I wanted to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, indeed. So I want to talk a bit about the accessibility of the Bible for Mm. us everyday folk. Mm. Um, one of the beauties of the book is how you, you show us how elaborate, the text is, and how much creativity and energy we need to have in engaging it. And you, you picked up on, I, I believe this is origins, um, origin who is, uh well, I can't even remember. He goes back to mm-hmm. second, second century, third century.
2: Late, yeah, late second, early third. Yeah, yeah,
0: and he's the one that came up with this image of being a spiritual herbalist, or is this was this yeah, your it, image off of no, him? it?
2: No, it's from him. It might it. I think it's likely it predates him, okay but he that's that's as far back as I can
0: find, okay so I'm going to push on that a little bit because Please. when you describe the spiritual herbalist, I mean it sounds very compelling about this person who not only grows stuff in the garden but mm-hmm. understands the weeds and the herbs and um right. knows knows the soil so intimately that they're able to make connection and not only knowing the the garden intimately but knowing their patient their the people they're interacting with so well that they know how to connect what's from the garden to right. the person to bring about healing. And it's it's a beautiful image.
2: Yeah, I like but, that one
0: a lot. But I want to push on that a little bit because, I mean, yeah. we've started taking gardening more seriously in the last five years. and um, since you
2: have actual knowledge. This is dangerous. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, it's a, no, what I'm thinking is, like, you know, when it comes down to it, though, we just want to grow some really nice tomatoes, you know? Like, we want to get some <laughs> nice tomatoes because... Yeah. It's really it's really cool. And so I'm gonna connect it to I'm I'm assuming that your path would have crossed with Stanley Hauerwas at Duke. I know he's been yeah, retired. He was
2: on he was on my committee and I took every course he taught for okay. a while and Okay, yeah, so you know correct.
0: him you know him quite well. Yeah. So he is quoted in his book on the scriptures called Unleashing the Scriptures and Yeah. I mean he's pretty good at pushing the envelope and maybe having tongue firmly planted in cheek when he says some things. But I think um <laughs> I mean, Hauerwas was really, really influential for me, even coming to mm. faith, because I um, I ended up at Bible College and had professor a professor who was very influenced by by Howarth, that's great, and, and I found like I actually found faith in theological study at, at Bible College um, because great. of the engagement with it. But Howarth said this. He said, um, basically, saying that um, because of our North American individualism. Yeah. Um quite frankly, we need to take the Bible away from North American Christians. Yeah. yeah. Because it's too hard a task for people who have been formed in the way that North Americans have been formed to actually yeah. engage engage the scriptures in any way that would actually lead us to actually getting a, an understanding of the text. So, yeah. um So my question here is, it sure actually like, although you, you, you really describe the delight of engaging scriptures in a, in a fulsome way. Mm -hmm. I I asked the question, can we, should we really be accessing it or should we? Yeah. 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 That's
2: really good. So, um, I often tell Stanley's vignette. See, Stanley teaches with these vignettes, these, these, he's a parabolic teacher. So it's not quite that it's tongue-in-cheek. He's always telling the truth, but he always thinks it's uproariously fun, too. So mm-hmm. um, so he likes to imagine a, a fellow professor at Duke, um, not from the Divinity School, sort of mockingly saying, oh, you're a theologian. Explain God to me, right? Um, and Stanley says, oh, well, I can't. You're far too corrupt. So what you have to do is you have to hold your hands like this and then kneel like this and then say these words, our Father who art it. Now, good. Do that several thousand times, uh, and then we can have a conversation. So um, my guy, Williman was my other mentor there, points out that in the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, before Malcolm converts to Islam, he's in prison, and his brother has converted to Islam, and his brother writes him and says, Malcolm, Malcolm, don't eat pork. I'll explain later. <laughs> Um, now, it's one thing I love about the Mennonite tradition is that you guys basically say, okay, we're going to be nonviolent. That's 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 the thing. You don't say, huh, let's have a Bible study about Matthew 5 and find a way around it so we can send our sons and daughters off to kill people. Like, that's a common thing in my country, right? Um, no, you say we're going to be nonviolent. That's an a priori. Um, we get that from the scripture. We can cite the verses. But really, it's deeper than that. I mean, it comes from centuries of suffering because of that. And it also comes from the martyr's mirror, right, uh, from Mennonite families having this big book of saints who suffered for their commitment to nonviolence, and those stories shape how you read the Scripture. So um, I know it feels like I'm avoiding your question. I'm not. Um, but you'll see. So Lauren Winner, uh, my colleague at Duke, grew up Jewish, and there's this amazing story in the Jewish tradition. I mentioned this in the Bible about how Abraham's father is an idol-maker, and so Terah has a shop full of idols, and Abraham already knows something about the one true God, and so he takes a club and he smashes all the idols one day, except one, the biggest one, and he puts the club in the biggest idol's hand. And Terah comes home and is furious. You destroyed our livelihood, and Abraham says, no, I haven't. It wasn't me. It was that big idol over there with the club in his hand. Tara says, what are you talking about? Idols can't move or think. And Abram, of course, says, well, then why do you worship them, right? It's a great story. Um, so Lauren says she was in college before she realized that story wasn't in the Bible. <laughs> so these 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 stories shape a community, and then they shape how we read Scripture. And so the line between those stories and the Scripture is pretty pretty thin. Um so the spiritual herbalist, um, I mean I'm thinking there of, of of a of a physician. So it's specifically a healing garden she has grown, right? Um so she's not interested in tomatoes at the moment. Maybe her spouse grows it I don't know, whatever. But the point is growing things to heal people. Now, as I often say, every analogy limps, and that analogy limps in that it assumes an individual healer and an individual patient, and it assumes something's wrong with the person, right? I don't like that assumption in the sense that There's not always something wrong. Sometimes we're in great health. (laughs) Um, But uh, the healer is actually Jesus, and it's actually all of his scripture. He's grinding up in a pestle to heal us, humanity, from what ails us, right? It's just taking a long, long, long time. Um, My tradition, Methodism, didn't have a lot of those stories, ancillary stories to the scripture, and that's one of the reasons I'm jealous of Mennonites. I'm jealous of Judaism. Um, and I'm trying to draw on their memory bank of those of such stories. Hmm.
0: That's a I like your answer. That's a good answer. It's a hard question because I mean I I think I think what I, I mean the thing that I take from it is that um, what you think you're doing when you're reading the Bible isn't what you're actually doing, and so you need to think what you're actually doing when you're reading the Bible, and if mm-hmm. you don't think about your preconceptions and your biases and all these things, you may run into some cul-de-sacs that will get you in Absolutely.
2: trouble. Absolutely. I mean, one thing you guys are really good at is saying, Hey, it's the whole community. That's the priest here. It's not some ordained person. And so I'm submitting what I've given you to the community's discernment. And if I'm wrong, the community needs to be able to say so. And, you should probably check with the weakest members first. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And I guess the other thing is, we will run into biases <laughs> called the sacks. There's no safe remove from that. Yeah. Um, which is one reason the sturdiness of the church's tradition is so important. So it took us hundreds of years to say, yeah, you should probably be willing to say the Son is God the same way the Father is God. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we tried all the alternatives, and they don't work, mm-hmm. and bad things happen. Now, God is really patient that God let us have 400 years <laughs> before we hammered out that issue of first importance. Mm-hmm. So like God's not anxious. God didn't hand it down from heaven. God let us fumble our way to it. Um, and often I wish God were less patient with our interpretive malfeasance.
0: Yeah. I mean that was that was something I really I really loved your chapter 5 where you talked about um how God is Jewish, Catholic and Pentecostal. Thanks. Um, um I mean nice connections to the Trinity and all that but I I think the thing that really that I took away the biggest was and I've heard this before but it's so easy to forget that we often think of the tradition as something that's sort of set in stone and you yeah. you really highlight that tr- the tradition is a conversation. Right. And so when we take the tradition seriously, we continue the conversation. We don't. Right. Sort of say, well, ever since Luther, yeah. we don't have to have that conversation anymore. That's right. And um and yeah, again, it just I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about how we shouldn't be so anxious about the diversity that we're interacting with.
2: Yes. Yeah, the conversation can take really different forms, right? So John Baer, the great scholar of origin, likes to say, everybody was playing soccer, and then origin came along and picked up the ball and ran with it and said, this game's now rugby. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like, he was controversial in his time. We excommunicated him a few hundred years later. Now everyone's like, uh, origin's a lot more right than wrong. So, like, it's a slow burn. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Wow. That's oh, I haven't heard that bear quote before. That's great. Isn't that good? <laughs> um,
0: I like how an American is talking about rugby. That's really I a, know quite something.
1: Using, using
2: somebody from the UK uh, about a sport that I've never played. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we probably have to wrap up soon, but I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a, another question at you um, around. Um, so, what would be your response to a person who? kind of grew up with some knowledge of the Bible, um, and let it be for several years or maybe 10, maybe a really long time, um, and is curious to re-engage it from a new perspective or mm-hmm. to, to kind mm-hmm. of give it a shot again. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you, what would your encouragement be to that
2: individual? So this will seem like the wrong answer, but it's what comes to mind. So I sort of got, I mean, I came through evangelicalism in North America with all its glories and difficulties. And the seminary I went to, Duke, uh, our rivals tease us by saying, Duke is where evangelicals go to become Catholic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And really, really indebted. Anyway, um, so I was on that trajectory, and I went to a Trappist monastery. So these are monks who pray eight times a day, and they chant psalms. And in the beginning of the Psalter, their handwritten psalm books, is a quote from St. Augustine about the totus Christus, the whole Christ. And Augustine says, it's Jesus Christ who prays the psalms, head and members. Uh, in his head, he prays them in his ministry, from his cross especially. In his members, we pray them now. And I just found that mind-blowing. Like, what if Paul, what if it's not a metaphor? <laughs> what if it's really true that um, we are being joined in one body to Jesus as our head. And when we read the Bible, we're trying to learn to read it like our head does. So I guess I would want to invite that person to a monastery and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get up at three o'clock in the morning and chant Psalms for an hour. Uh, and then we're going to do that for a few years. And then we'll talk about the Bible. <laughs> um, so there's both a kind of deep familiarity with the songs and size of Israel. Um, in the ancient church, people would speak of monks and nuns who knew the whole David. They knew the whole Psalter by heart. So there's a deep literalism. There's a love for memorizing the Bible that evangelicals also have. But then there's a deep Christological center that says all of this, um, it's Jesus' book. It points to him. And really anything that doesn't point to him directly, you have to figure out how it does indirectly, or you haven't read it correctly yet. So if you like, the Bible... When we read the Bible, it has to be (laughs) life-giving. It has to love those present into health. Um, It has to honor their personhood and the image of God stamped in them. Um, It has to tell the truth about God, right? Um, So I I guess I do have a sense that who we think God is really matters as we read the Bible. And if we really think God is a vindictive jerk, that's going to come across. Mm. If we really think God is absolutely crazy in love with all the wrong people, <laughs> um, that's going to come across. Um, and if we think that what's happening right now, this is the truth about the world. Christ is healing the cosmos. That's what's currently taking place. The slain lamb rules. And despite all evidence to the contrary, he is making all things new. That will affect how we read the thing, right? So I guess I'm not – I guess I want to take that person to the monastery, or I guess I want to take them to the downtown east side and serve the poor together. Um or um I, I want to do something active. It it's not a head exercise, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Um this is a quote I, I think this is from your book <laughs> that I wrote this down. Um and I think it summarizes a bit what you just said. You said the point of the Bible isn't to learn what it says. The point of the going to church isn't to be more religious. The point of both is to be made into nothing, but love of God and neighbor.
2: That's good. I hope I said that. Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's me riffing off Augustine, right? So he has this mm. treatise on Christian doctrine about how to read the Bible, and he has this image that can't won't get out of my head, where he says, um, "Let's say someone reads the Bible incorrectly about the passage at hand, but in a way that incites love of God and neighbor. That's sort of like." accidentally leaving the path and cutting through the foliage and getting to the right destination. And then he says that person should be shown the correct path so they don't become accustomed to going off the path, right? So it still matters to get the text in front of you right, in whatever way we mean by right. But the destination of the love of God and neighbor is the thing. So this is the obverse. You can read the Bible correctly in a way that incites hatred of God and neighbor, and you've done it wrong. Every step was wrong right? And we've seen plenty of that in the lives of folks you're talking about who've been mistreated by it. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I
1: like that. Wow. Jason, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Uh, That's, this has been really enriching and, and helpful in, in the kind of the conversations we've been having for the last, I don't know, four, 13 episodes, I think. No, actually, this is
0: number 16, I believe. So oh, really? Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. Wow. wow. But, yeah, I... I. You're the
0: first special guest.
1: You're, you're special.
2: <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to be special. I, no, y'all, I'm still slightly surprised when anybody reads anything I write, let alone finds it helpful. So I'm really flattered and honored. Thank you for your time and attention. It means a lot.
1: I hope that your uh, transition to a new home, new home, not new city, right?
2: Yeah, we're in Port Moody, which is a suburb. So mm-hmm. our kids are in their same East Van schools, and uh, my spouse and I both commute back to our work. Um, okay. We're official suburbanites. It's gross, but
0: what are you mm. going to do? <laughs> so just uh, just to make a connection to the COVID, to COVID, we're all trying to make this work. What's it been like for you, um, teaching and? <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, our seminary offers stuff online sort of like St. Stephen's does, um, all the time. So, uh, usually I have two thirds of the class in the room and a third elsewhere in Hawaii or Alberta or someplace. Um, now everybody's, uh, elsewhere, even if they're sitting in the next room from me. Mm. Um, so it's a loss, but we're, we're kind of accustomed to it. We didn't have to throw everything at the computer in a, in a panic like a lot of schools did. Mm. Um, but it's still a loss. So, to give one example, I mean, you're talking about the sacramental thing. Uh, We decided not to do graduation online, so we're just sort of saving up, and we'll do kind of a massive two-year convocation uh, when we can hand each other degrees and hug each other and so on. Well, what year is that going to be in? Yeah,
1: right.
2: (laughs) Um, I keep thinking, you know, the church has often found our best praying people, our mystics, uh, during plagues, and I, I don't know what to make of that, but in 100 years, you know, whose name that we've not heard of now will be the person we're all reading. I don't mm. know.
1: To be determined.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But but God keeps giving us saints, so more of that, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Guys, well, this was fun. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Well, I want to leave you time to get to your next appointment. so. Cheers. All
2: right. <laughs> all right. I'd love to talk again. Let's do it. Uh, right. Thanks for this. Yeah, right. that'd be Take great. Care.
1: All right. Take okay. care.
2: Blessings, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.